Amen. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, uh, we enjoyed last week, and I want to encourage you and let you know that I would, uh, I still love this church. I love you guys. I appreciate the opportunity for us to go. Uh, and I want, I want to ask you this question, and as you think about it, you don't have to ask, but when I say the word church, what comes to mind? Um, and I want you to think about that because it varies in different areas and different thought processes. When I, I asked this question a while ago on Facebook, and I said, what comes to mind when I say church? And here are some of the, the statements that were made. First thought is Westboro. You moderates need to do a better job reining in the fringe fanatics. That was a comment I got. <laughs> okay. Uh, church is a place where sinners meet to gain knowledge of how to be more like Christ, a place of growth, a place to be the body, a place where truth is spoken, pain that can be healed. Church is a place where we should all be accepted, for there are no differences other than there is where we are. Church is a place where we ask the Holy Spirit to work and guide us. Church is a family. And then here's the reality. For some, church is gossip, judgment, and hypocrisy, right? So I want you to think about that because a lot of times people have different viewpoints of what church is. I want you to flip to Acts chapter 8. If you've, if you've been following along, and I know I'm kind of jumping backwards. Acts chapter 8 was last week, but I hope you've been reading through the New Testament in 90 days with us. We did this eight years ago, seven years ago, something like that. And then we're preaching through different sections and things. But I want to encourage you through this portion in Acts chapter 8. One of the great things we got to experience in Bozeman, and here's what I would challenge you with as we think about this, is it doesn't take a pastor, it doesn't take a person who's a full-time ministry to go on a mission trip and to be able to serve. And one of the things that we got to experience in Bozeman is just the simple ways that we were able to do things. I mean, we, we painted uh, some, some uh, picnic tables for the teachers and stuff like that. We moved desks uh, into the, the areas to prep them for school. We cleaned up a prop room. That was our first day. We cut down trees. We did all these things that help out. And then we had to have a conversation or got to have a conversation with some of the teachers at that school, you know, and Bedrock Church is currently meeting in that school. And Bedrock Church, the school they're meeting in is surrounded by homes. And please hear me out when I say this. The median home that we found out that week was $650,000, median. Like, I mean, it's just crazy. We talked to a gentleman who, uh, 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 like three years ago, bought a house for $150,000 and said he could sell his right now for four fifty. The problem is it would be 18 months before he could get into or buy another home, and he'd pay even more for that. Bozeman is changing drastically. People who live in Bozeman are fleeing, or who have grown up in Bozeman are fleeing. The money is outside money. As a matter of fact, there was a news story done. We were talking to the guy who owns the condo and has given it to a, a reduced rate. And that, that condo that we were painting on uh, or painting in uh, is going to be used to, to fund or to, to bring guys in to plant churches. So Bedrock Church, I just told you, has a, a, a goal of planting five churches over the next 10 years in Bozeman because of the... the, the, the perceived growth of what is going to be taking place in Bozeman, they say, hey, we got to plant more churches to reach more people. Um, and that, that condo is going to be used to house the guys who are going to come in and get some training and then go out and plant churches. So it's us being like kind of the tipping point or the tip of the spear in getting these things across and be able to serve and help Bedrock begin to start a movement. And here's what I wanted to talk about today. All right, Acts chapter 8 is this idea of a church becoming a movement, or the church becoming a movement. 
Oftentimes, or what we saw with COVID, is that COVID and things like that began to draw the church down. We began to say, oh, COVID happened, Sunday services stopped, the church is ineffective. And the problem is when we put all our eggs in one basket and make it all about the Sunday morning type mentality, then the movement doesn't progress, the movement doesn't go forward because the movement stops because, oh, hey, we're not meeting, right? And so what I want you to think about is this, that everybody thinks about something when they think about church. For some, it may be stained glass and steeples, suits and ties with pews and potlucks. For others, it may be a theater with lights and seats and projectors and Earplugs. We all have our opinions on what should be done on a Sunday morning, but the one thing that you never hear or oftentimes we don't think about is what the church is. It's a movement. It's a movement of people. Not a church as a building that you've always dreamed of, but a church that God designed, a church that is a movement that can progress regardless of what goes on outside. A movement means to advance or progress to move forward. It requires action. And when action is taken, momentum is created. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. And what we're going to see is what ends up happening when movement actually begins to progress or move forward, right? Acts chapter 7. Anybody knows what happens in, or anybody know what happens in Acts chapter 7? It's called the stoning of who? Stephen. Stephen's stoned because he's standing on the truth of the gospel. He's told to basically deny it. He's like, I'm not going to do it. Not going to happen. Not going to change my way. So he's drug out into the courts and he's stoned to death. And after Stephen is stoned to death, Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says this, and Saul was there giving approval of his death or to his death. In other words, Saul is standing back. When we say approval, it's like he's shaking his head going, ha, right? I got you. I'm going to show you. It's the judger or the one who's dishing out the punishment also seeing the execution of it. And so Paul is approving of what's going on. Now listen to what happens. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. So here's what happens. Stephen is just the tipping point of a large persecution of people who are following Jesus. And so it says, on that day, a great persecution broke out. And so we have to begin to think of what does that mean? What does that signify? And what it does is it signifies that Stephen was the start or just the scapegoat or the tipping point of where everybody else begins to blame the Christians to be the problem. It's your guys' fault. You guys did this. You're going against the grain. You're rejecting Judaism. You're rejecting Jewish ideologies. You're rejecting the laws, what they thought, when in reality they were stepping up and saying, hey, it's not just about the law. We follow the law or we try and be obedient to the law, but we can't keep the law. Jesus is the only one. And you have to excuse my voice. I'll put you at rest. Um, Our whole time out in Bozeman, on Saturday, we got there, it was fairly clear. Sunday morning, we woke up, started driving to church, and you could see the smoke rolling in. There were 21 forest fires going on in Montana. Um, one of the pictures up there, we were up in the mountains, we hiked up on Sunday, that's where we about killed Mike. Um, <laughs> we were supposed to, literally, we were supposed to drive up and be 500 yards from this uh, glacier lake that we were going to hike up to. Well, they were logging, and so they shut the, the road down. So it went from a 500-yard hike to a 2.3-mile hike, um, and we literally about killed Mike. 
Um, so <laughs> we were nervous, uh, but we got up there. But one of the pictures you can see is the smoke. And by the end of the week, I was congested and struggling. So, uh, but listen to what he says. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, listen to what happens, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, and he put them in prison. Those who had been scattered, listen to what happens, preached the word what? Wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. Verse 8, so there was great joy in that city. Here's one of the things that happens as a result of a church being a movement, what we have to begin to understand. In order for a movement to take place, what we saw in the early church and what I believe oftentimes happens in the, even the church today is that when persecution arises, the people rise up. And as the people rise up, they proclaim the truth of the gospel. And as they proclaim the truth of the gospel, persecution gets worse. But the people rise up even higher and they continue to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And here's the truth of the matter. In the midst of the pain and the suffering and the persecution that the early church faced, and I believe even today's church faces, we may not experience the full weight of that here in the United States, but people around the world are. But in the midst of that pain and that suffering and that heartache and the persecution, there is joy in the city because the truth of the gospel is proclaimed and people are changed from the inside out because it's Jesus who does the one or is, is the one who does the changing. It is Jesus who calls people. It is Jesus who cleans people. It is Jesus who saves people. And so there is this great joy that ends up taking place. Matter of fact, as you read the book of Acts, it doesn't take long to begin to see the difference between the church in those times versus the church of today. And so what I want to encourage us is to understand what it means to be a movement. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Let's be real. Let's be even a little bit realistic. If the government was to come back in and say, hey, we're going to shut you down. Like you may say this isn't happening, but all across Canada, you realize churches still can't meet and pastors are being arrested in Canada. Arrested for meeting. All right? This is happening all over the place. My buddy Omar, I work with him at the Missouri Baptist Convention. It's from Toronto. All of his family still is not going to church publicly. But it's all gone underground. They're still meeting. Why? Because the church is a movement. And so one of the things we have to begin to understand and one of the things that we have to progress for, one of the things that we as a church, and I believe churches around the United States, have to be prepared for is to be a movement of people. In other words, what that means is this. It's not a centralized leader where everybody looks to Pastor Brian and goes, well, Pastor Brian's got all the answers. It has to be a group of people who say, hey, when the shepherd is struck or when we are forced to be scattered, that people rise up and take a leadership role and say, hey, I'm going to train and teach and equip and prepare God's people for works of service because that's the role of a pastor, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. 
which in reality means that we're going to have to be prepared in a small way to be able to multiply out in a great way. So here's the key idea, the key statement, the key thought. If you remember anything, I want you to remember this. The church is a movement of people, obedient to the mission of Jesus Christ, and we are willing to preach Christ to anybody. The church is a movement of people, obedient to the mission of Jesus Christ, and we're willing to preach Christ to anybody. And let me even clarify this, even if it costs me everything. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, that's exactly what he meant. If it costs me everything, I will do everything I can to preach Christ to anybody I can. And so here's what I want us to see are three things that I believe that we see here in this text that show us what happens or what leads to a movement. Look at verses one through three. Number one, I say this, pressure from outside sources creates a movement. Pressure from outside sources. Now, for those of you to understand, movements often start under times of tremendous pressure, and great people rise to the occasion and to their calling to lead great movements further along in history. I mean, we can go all the way around. We can look at Martin Luther King. The pressure he faced as a leader to call for equality across the United States was great. And in the midst of it, it cost him his life, and yet at the same time, it caused the cost, while I believe, honestly, we look at it and go, man, that was a bad history thing, the cost in the end led to drastic change or a movement across the United States. So this pressure from outside sources is huge. And so Jesus starts in the book of Acts by showing himself to the apostles and telling them, listen, not to go anywhere until they have received the Holy Spirit. Then he gives them this one key verse in the whole book, which says to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, right? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. As they're waiting, they receive the Holy Spirit, everything's going on, and what we see end up happening, or what we end up seen happening here in the text all throughout the book of Acts is all of a sudden this explosion of violence and, and, and pressure and persecution against the church, all culminating with Stephen. And listening, now it forces everybody to be scattered. If you read the book of James, at the very beginning of the book of James, he says, hey, this is written to those who have been dispersed, those who have been scattered. Here's how you live a practical faith out. And so in order for us to live a practical faith out, we have to begin to follow these simple things. But listen to what happens. Verse 1, as Saul was there giving approval to his death, what we see, what we see here is just a glimpse of what ends up happening in the end. Because here's the beauty of this text. Saul, the very one who unleashes the barrage of hate that, that goes on attacking the church, that begins to destroy. Keep in mind what it says. He began to destroy the church. In other words, to destroy the people. Like a lot of people think, oh, yeah, he's going in and destroying the buildings. No, what he's doing is he's going after the people. Why? Because the church is who? The people, right? I said this a long time ago, and it's probably one of my favorite ones to say. I don't know why. It's stupid. Well, it's not stupid, but it's, it's just, here is the, here is the, open the door. Yeah, it's completely heretical in reality. And listen, I'm not going to knock every stupid. This isn't the church. This is a problem in American theology that we taught everybody that the church is the building, when the truth of the matter is the church is the people. 
And so when he begins to destroy the church, what he's saying is he begins to destroy the people within the church. He begins to go after them, to attack them, to undercut them, to undermine them, to kill them. And so Paul sets out with a very clear, specific purpose. And he thinks he's doing it all for good when in reality he's doing it all for bad. And later on, Acts chapter 9, here's the beauty of 7, 8, and 9. Paul destroys, Paul approves of the stoning of Stephen. Paul's sitting back. He begins to destroy the church. Acts chapter 9, Paul has an a, a, a unbelievable encounter with, with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He's blinded, and then Paul becomes what? The single-handed greatest missionary church-planting dude in the history of all time. And Paul, the one who tried to start the movement, is the one who progresses the movement the furthest. You ever thought about that? Like when we begin to look at people and go, man, I, 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 you know, I've, I've had people in church say this. We don't want those kinds of people in church. Not here, but I've heard people say that before. We don't want those kind of people in church. Really? That dude may be the next Paul. That dude may be the next Billy Graham. That dude may be the next Greg Laurie. That dude may be the guy who plants 10, 20, 30 churches. You and I never know. But the pressure from the outside sources is what leads to a great movement. It's what leads to a movement of Jesus' church going out and becoming a spreading viral movement. Listen, here's the question I want you to ask or think about. Are we so passionately in love with Jesus that we could say, if this happened to me, if I was forced to be scattered, that I would walk with joy, that I would count it a blessing? Because oftentimes we're like, well, God, you're kind of calling me out of my comfort zone. Life's pretty easy here. It doesn't cost me a lot to serve you. When the very thing may be that it's got to cost you everything. So I said, what is, what is present movement? Number one, pressure from the outside. Number two is this, passionately proclaiming the word of God. The people of God passionately proclaim the word of God. We can stand back all we want. Listen, we, we can talk, and I, and I think it's great that we go in and we serve, and we need to be serving, and we need to serve with great grace and with great truth, and we come along churches that need help, and we partner together to help each other out. But listen to me, if we don't proclaim the truth, none of it's going to matter if we just say, hey, we're just here to do a good deed. Proclamation of the truth, proclamation of the word is the, of utmost importance. We have to begin to explain to people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Passionate would be a great understatement if you you were to ask me here. Listen again what it says. Those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. And I would venture to say in a very passionate way. Why? Because it cost them everything. And what's funny is it cost them everything and they were still willing to say, well, you know what, I've already lost everything. What do I got to lose now? And it says that they did it everywhere they went. Wherever they were walking, wherever they sat, wherever they ate, whoever they were talking to, wherever they were working at, if they could even find a job, everywhere they went, they proclaimed the message of the gospel. They proclaimed the word passionately. I mean, I kind of think about this, like what do I get excited about? My wife will tell you. I love to explain baseball to people. 
And my wife's like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you guys just don't get it. You don't get all the intricacies and everything about it. When I hear people go, baseball's boring, I'm like, yeah, that's because you don't know it. When I hear people say, well, God's boring. God doesn't have a plan for my life. God doesn't know it. God doesn't care for me. It's because you don't know. And we've got to be the ones who passionately communicate the truth of the gospel. And there's a difference between passion and just going, yeah, you know, Jesus died for you. Really? Yeah. But if you don't believe this, all right, I'll just walk away. What? Is that passion? Like, we're almost like, well, I did my duty, God. Right? A passionate proclamation of the word. That we come with great joy because of what he's done for us. See, these were ordinary people doing out of the ordinary things because they serve an extraordinary God. Ordinary people doing out of the ordinary things because they serve an extraordinary God. That's what happens in a movement. See, what I loved about this week is that God takes people wherever they're at and says, let's go. And you can look all the way around and you can look and go, man, young, old, younger believer, older believer, and you can sit back and look and go, God works in mysterious ways and God uses every single one of us. Here's the, the beauty of like if we look at Montana or whether it's Mexico or wherever else we have a possibility to go. We have to be on mission every day here in order to carry the mission out even further. It does no good to go on a mission trip if we're not going to be on mission in our own home. In other words, when it says that they passionately proclaimed the word wherever they went, that means even in their home or their work, with their friends and their family, they preached the word about the life-transforming, sin-destroying God who destroyed the grip of sin and death on the cross and rose again, offering us life and life more abundantly. See, this movement continues on to this day, and it continues through me and you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about this, Acts chapter 1, verse 15, 120 believers came to Jesus. Acts 2, there's the reception of the Holy Spirit, the people who received the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter addresses the God-fearing Jews. God continues to add daily, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, to their numbers. There's the healing of the beggar, where Peter and John were arrested, Acts chapter 4. The number grew as a result of their arrest to over 5,000 people. Fear seizes the believers, right? Acts chapter 5, verse 14. But more and more are added daily. You get what ends up happening? When the pressure rises, what happens to the church? It rises too. It rises to the occasion. That when the grip of Satan seems to say, no matter what you do, I'm going to continue to attack and bombard you, the power of God overwhelmingly rises to the top in the life of those believers, and he says, I'm going to do greater things. That's why when Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, because it's not about you and I, it's about what God's doing in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us, because God is the one who does it. As a matter of fact, the, the reality is this, a movement is only as good or only as strong as those who rely upon the power of God working in it. If we don't rely upon the power of God working in us and through us, it's not going to be a movement that's going to last 
It's not going to be a movement of longevity or anything like that. Listen, by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, it is estimated at this point that the church may have been around 25,000 members. 25,000. Now, if you think they all met at some big arena, like Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas with Joel Osteen, you're smoking something. 25,000 people did not gather together and meet. They met in homes and villages and towns and synagogues and things like that. So it's important for us to understand that the spread of the gospel begins because of this persecution, Acts chapter 8. So the church has been growing, numbers have been growing, 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 growing. Persecution happens and boom, what happens? Yeah. If the numbers were upwards of 25,000 and it says everybody but the apostles was scattered. Jerusalem just lost 25,000 people. And the people are fleeing for their lives, and in reality, what are they doing? Spreading the gospel. The very thing that Satan set up to destroy the church is the very thing that God uses to expand the church. The passionate proclamation of the word is of utmost importance. And listen to me when I say this. It will be a cold day in hell when your pastor ever stops preaching the gospel. And I would venture to say this, that even if I get called on, moved on, God calls me home, whatever, that you hire a guy who's going to live and preach and stand on the truth of God's word. Because if you cater to the whims of society and government, you're going to set yourself up for failure. But when we stand on the truth of God's word, when we say no matter what the cost, we will live it out, that's exactly what the gospel is calling us to do passionately proclaim the word of the gospel from the beginning throughout the end of time. It's a big message. It has a big mission, and it is a big movement. And then number three, I want you to see this, the persistence in their calling. So we talk about this, that there is going to be pressure from the outside, that we have to passionately proclaim the word, but I want you to see the persistence in their calling. Here's the beauty of Acts chapter 8 and then following. A movement is hard to stop, whereas if it's a program, an event, or a building, the building can be destroyed, the event can be canceled, the program can be chopped, but a movement can't. That's why it's funny, like when you hear people talk about politics, and they're like, oh, grassroots movement, grassroots movement, huh? You think? But listen to what happens. Acts chapter 8, the scatter begins. Philip comes in. He starts to proclaim the gospel in, in, in verse 4. says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention. With shrieks. Evil spirits came out of many, many paralytics and cripples were healed, and there was great joy in the city. Then we see this Simon the sorcerer, who was also called Bar-Jesus, and he was trying to stop the movement of the gospel, and he's blinded. He's blinded because he's called out. Then we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip runs up, and this Ethiopian eunuch is reading the text. He's reading scripture. He's like, I don't understand. I'm not, how can I understand it? Philip's just like, you're reading it. I can explain it. Let me help you out. 
There's this persistence in Philip and everything else. And then we get to Saul. And Saul's conversion happens in Acts chapter 9. The disciples all don't trust Saul, which rightfully so. Let's be honest. You got a dude who set out to destroy the church, has been destroying the church, all of a sudden has a supernatural change in his life. Are you really going to trust him at first? Be like, is this guy kind of being like CIA-ish? Is he going to try and get within and then destroy us from inside out? And yet Paul begins a movement of church planting. Matter of fact, as you follow along with this in this New Testament 90, you're going to see this. That as Paul's going along, if we were to read this chronologically like we're going to be seeing, as Paul's going along planting churches, then he's writing letters back to the churches he starts. That's the beauty of Acts. Acts is a longevity thing. It covers Paul's three missionary journeys. During those times, he writes his books. Those letters to the early believers in those churches. And so there's this persistence in their calling. Listen, when we are pursuing a mission and a vision so big, and we have to pursue a mission and vision that's so big, that if God doesn't come through, we will fail. And that's exactly what he's called us to. Saul, the violent aggressor of Christ, and Christians meet Jesus, Acts 9. Acts 10, Cornelius and the Roman centurion and the leader of the Italian regiment come to Jesus as well as his family. Acts 13, Paul preaches to Pisidian Antioch in one of the Sabbaths and, and the next in chapter 13, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word. Acts chapter 13, verse 49, the word spreads through the whole region. Acts chapter 14, verse 1, Iconium and a great number of believers come, or a great number of people come to believe that day. This crazy movement transformed individuals, it transformed households, marriages, families, cities, islands. And so here's the question, has God's mission changed? Nope. Are his plans different? No. But the way the movement looks is different. And it has changed over time. God moves through his church, and that's the people, so that it can be carried on, not just in our power, but by the power of his Holy Spirit. And here's what ends up happening as a result of that. Acts chapter 8, verse 8. So there was great joy in that city. So here's the truth of the matter, that when we proclaim the word passionately, when we stand on the truth of the gospel, when we share the love of Jesus with grace and with truth, when we stand on the truth and yet give grace to those who are looking and, and know that there's going to be problems, there's going to be struggles, and there's going to be difficulties as we do that. Listen, God is the one who changes hearts. God is the one who changes minds. God is the one who changes people's lives. And so in order, I believe, in order for us to see great joy in the city of independence, in order for us, for, for, for us to see great joy in the city of Kansas City, in order for us to see great joy in Bozeman or wherever else we're going to go, that we have to begin to understand this, that God wants to use me in a great way, that I am part of a movement, and I'm going to be obedient to the calling that he placed upon me, to the mission that he called me to. And then I'm going to proclaim the gospel. I'm going to proclaim the word passionately. That's what he calls us to. 
And listen, that's the good news, and that's what we see here. We see broken people being used in great ways all throughout Acts. And that's exactly what he's calling you and I to do. Broken people. All of us got our baggage. All of us got our flaws. All of us got our problems. All of us got our sins. And I know if you've been here long enough, I tell you this every time, but this is the truth. There's no way if you had asked me in high school, I'd be a preacher. No way. Not a chance. I had other aspirations, other desires. Matter of fact, go back, like I've said in the past, go back to my high school reunion. Everybody's like, oh, you're a what? And they looked at my wife. You know what he was like? She's like, yeah, I heard stories. (laughs) God uses ordinary people. Ordinary, everyday Joe Schmoes like me to do inordinary or unordinary things because we serve an extraordinary God. That's what a movement's about. God using the simple, or as 1 Corinthians says, the foolish to shame the wise because the wisdom of God is greater than man's wisdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace In the sending of your son, Jesus, we thank you for the calling that you place upon our lives as as missionaries, as, as followers, that you have called us to a movement, a movement that cannot be stopped by outside forces or outside pressure, but a movement that will rely upon and passionately proclaim the truth of your word. And God, I pray that we would just be persistent in our calling, knowing that you have called us to something higher and greater, that we are called to be holy because you are holy, that we are called to be separate from or separated from the world, not to be of the world, but to be in the world. And so, Lord, we pray that we live our lives different than those who are outside the church, different than those who are far from you, different than those from those who are lost. And yet we would passionately proclaim your word, your goodness, and your grace in your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we're closing with a song, here's a very simple way for you to respond. If you want somebody to pray with you, I always offer this up. I'm going to be up here. We'd love to pray with you. If you want to talk more about salvation, what it means to follow Jesus, we'd love to talk to you about that as well. But we're going to stand, we're going to close with a song, and then you'll be dismissed.